The water flows through this creek, much like the energy flows through your body. As you see, there are several pools where the water swirls around before flowing on. These pools are like our chakras. So, chakras are pools of spiraling energy in our bodies? Exactly. If nothing else were around, this creek would flow pure and clear. However, life is messy, and things tend to fall in the creek. And then what happens? The creek can't flow? Yes, but if we open the paths between the pools... The energy flows. Bending Not Breaking The Gifts of Imperfection Edition Episode 10 Guidepost 8 Cultivating Calm and Stillness Letting Go of Anxiety as a Lifestyle Welcome back to Bending Not Breaking. This is Ben Pruitt, your host for this mini-series on the gifts of imperfection by Brene Brown. And we, of course, are featuring all of the Avatar The Last Airbender content, the Avatar Universe content, Korra, all that jazz. And this is episode 10 of the mini-series, which means we only have a couple left. We might do a wrap-up episode. I haven't quite decided yet, but we are very excited to begin leaning into our next season, which is The Legend of Korra Book 2. We have started putting recording sessions for that on our calendars, which has been very exciting, and I'm very pleased to announce that we have some pretty sweet guests joining us as well. And we're excited to discuss those important things in book two, but before we do that, we gotta get to the rest of this and these guideposts. And... You know, we've been working on these guideposts, and we've had some really wonderful people join us, and thank you all for allowing me the space to engage with these fun and amazing people. And so, big shout out to everyone that's joined us so far, and also just a big thank you to the people that have helped me along the way, that uh, have helped me to lead today's episode by myself. And so I'm, I'm grateful for all of the ones that have contributed to this, even if they are not necessarily here today. And speaking of today, we're going to be discussing pages 134 through 140 in the 10th anniversary edition of The Gifts of Imperfection. And next week, you guessed it, focusing on guidepost 9, we are, uh, which are on pages 141 through 148. And so we got some logistics out of the way. Now we can dive into some content because that's the fun part. So, all right, this is the deal. My score for this was not great. Um, I super less than halfway. In fact, it's around like 40%. So this is my my worst one. Um, And I'm going to name that. And I want you all to... Um, here that I am not necessarily an expert on this. I am just going to report what I have uh, read and learned about, even if I am perhaps not so good at practicing it myself. Um, Though I will admit that I am truly working on doing better. And uh, 
Speaking of getting better and leaning into this, uh, I decided to take advantage of an opportunity to seek help in this area. <laughs> uh, and so I signed up for an opportunity ca- uh, essentially called like forest therapy. And one of the my network from work on Thursday, and I'm recording this on a, a Monday, so this past Thursday, said that their wife, who is a clinical social worker, was offering a free session of forest therapy in which we would, you know, we're not going to simply walk through the woods, but the goal is to immerse ourselves in the communication between the forest and our senses. And it's a practice of mindfulness and contemplation, and essentially the forest is acting as the therapist in a way. And so when I first read the printout, I'm not going to lie, I was not in a great place mentally, and so I didn't sign up, and uh, you know, it was in the middle of a work shift, I was thinking about all the work I had to get done, I was worried about the minefield that is my brain space, uh, because someone had recently called me out on something, and so not only was I not interested, but then in my, you know, angsty self, I was also like the judgy voice in my head was like, that sounds like a waste of time, or I'm already too busy for that, or that sounds like a bunch of hoo-ha, and you know, it's like all the things, and (laughs) it's funny because then I got home from work, and I had been planning to read this chapter, and so I read it, and I was like, oh crap. (laughs) So the next day, I signed up for forest therapy. So, naturally, in hindsight, that was this yesterday, I'm really glad that I did. I found myself feeling connected to the people that were with me. I found myself connected to the forest and connected to the wind and the sights and the sounds and the smells and... I let myself play in the creek when I went into the water, and it was just a wonderful experience. It reminded me of all the memories that I have of playing in water and playing at the at the river when I was younger, and it was just a really wonderful experience, and I'm really glad that I did it. And uh, if you're curious about learning more about just the forest therapy in general, I do want to make a plug. It's a practice that is designed off of the Japanese practice of Shinrin-yoku, which is, that translates to forest bathing. And apparently there's a ton of health benefits that have been proven when, by spending uh, 120 minutes or two hours uh, in nature, right? So in the forest, in nature, if you do that for uh, two hours a week, there's so many health benefits, including heart health, uh, body health, mental health, all the things. And so uh, you can learn more. There, I think uh, NPR did a piece on it several years back. Harvard has a, uh, a couple of publications um, on it. Uh, and there's several other ways you can research it just by you know, Googling Shinrin-yoku or forest therapy or forest bathing, any of the above. So now, now that I've kind of told you this, this story, I, I kind of want to lean into the, mo- the moral of telling it, right? Like the point of sharing the story is that I, I didn't want to invest in this whole calm and stillness crap because I was so focused on the things that I needed to do. I'm so interested in spending my now to prepare for my future. And, you know, I, I feel the need to secure later 
So I, I need to, you know, do the dishes now. I need to feel secure later. So I need to do X, Y, and Z. I need to, 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 so that my future feels okay, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm sure several of you can, can kind of get on board with this, but I, I think I say that to name that it, it feels really counterintuitive to stop and focus on me time when I have this compulsion to continue doing things because I want my future self to enjoy myself, right? Like, I, like I want to enjoy everything in the future, but, like, not now because I have to prepare for that. But, y'all, like, we've got to start thinking, and I say we, clearly meaning me here. If this resonates with you, that's great, and I hope it, uh, you know, can be helpful for you to hear my story, but... I think when I say that, I want to just, uh, I want to live my life in a way that helps me lean into the joy that is now, because I, I, this is all I get. This is my, my present. And like the future is just the conversation between my hopes and my imagination. (laughs) And I, I think that right now I want to live in this this space that I have and how do I appreciate it? And I'm not saying that we don't need to prepare for our future. I'm saying that if that's the only thing we're doing, then we're probably not going to be feeling too great. It's probably pretty anxiety inducing, uh, if you will. And so that means we need to kind of go against this counterintuition and Lean into this calm and stillness. Lean into the joy. And I think that, and to put it that way, I think calm and stillness can help us lean into that joy. Often, though, the problem is we don't want to, right? So here's here's what happens uh, for a lot of us. Uh, I will not say that this happens for everybody, but what what I think happens is we get to a point where we can't take it any longer, and. You know, I described on the podcast, I think, for some of you who listened to it, like, um, it kind of at this point last year, or really during the spring of this past year, I hit a really big wall at school where I was like, I can't do it anymore. This is, it's not tenable, right? So I started going to therapy to figure out, like, how do we, how, how can I deal with this? How do I do it? And I, I'm, I was realizing that I, I can't continue to function in this situation any longer. And, you know, I, I heard this analogy that, uh, not from my therapist, but uh, like it was like a turtle um, without a shell living in a briar patch. And that's me. I'm the turtle without a shell in the briar patch trying to live. And I'm going to the therapist saying, how do I live in this briar patch? And how do I not get hurt in this briar patch? Like, I, I, what do I do? And ultimately, rather than trying to live in the briar patch, we have to ask, why are we living in a briar patch in the first place? Who is it serving to live in a briar patch? Is it serving me? Is this something, is this my goal? Is this what I'm choosing? Or is this something that, are there elements to this situation that I'm not choosing? And if so, who is it serving to continue to be present here? Right? And because 
we we try to like and i think another way to phrase this is that anxiety and numbing are tied to one another and so i'm i was feeling so anxious and i was going to therapy and like y'all i how do i get rid of experiencing this pain this is what i need to get rid of and we seek numbing and i find that i like to numb through work and i numb through all kinds like just ugh, i numb i numb i numb i numb and we try to numb the pain and keep going rather than stopping the source of why we need to numb in the first place right so i think that going back to our chapter on on numbing um might be important here as well just to, to consider it right they're you're kind of inextricably connected so this i think is a practice of cultivating calm and stillness i think this is how we stop the need for numbing uh so to speak and of course this is not a like a one trick pony but i do think that it can do something for us in terms of aiding that goal and you know i i think we're just living in an anxiety prone culture and i think it stems from you know we're always we always have our phone on us we always like i mean how many of you sleep with your phones right next to you on your bedside table right like oh but i need an alarm well maybe it's time as a, as a society we started investing in alarms that weren't connected to a phone right how how do we get another form of alarm how do we um help ourselves by not being constantly attached to a phone because we can't sit still we can't be with ourselves in the quiet right so we're talking about anxiety here and we're talking about calm and stillness as the antidote and not i i think it's important to kind of dissect anxiety a little bit more but also it's not just anxiety it's this it's fear it's um we're scared to be still because of what will come up for us often if we aren't still or if we are still because often not being still being on our phones being uh not being calm and still is a form of numbing the things that we're trying to avoid so we can't really cultivate calm and stillness until we're prepared to have that conversation with ourselves and so I just wanted to kind of lift that up as well. Okay, so anxiety is, interestingly, when you look at it from, um, I think, from a social work lens, what you'll notice is anxiety is kind of uh, defined as a function of groups and not individuals, which is really interesting because the way it translates, if I were to continue with the analogy from earlier, is that if I'm living in a briar patch, it means that I am bringing that briar patch with me with, into every conversation with everyone that I speak with, right? And so anxiety is contagious, right? Because anxiety um, in a vacuum doesn't last very long, whereas in groups... It does, and I, I find that to be really interesting. It's it's a it is a function of systems more than it is a function of individuals. And I can I can hear several of the what would be conversations of saying no 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 I have anxiety in my head and it's just me and I you know I can't I I don't know. However, I wonder 
for those of you who had that reaction, where that anxiety is stemming from in terms of the story that is being told uh, is that story in reaction to how others will perceive you? Is it in reaction to um, a, a future self that is dependent upon another groups in a social setting? Um, but also, it's it's not just that. It's even if I think about it like in terms of a family, where if I am anxious by myself, uh, it is inevitably going to spread to others and it's gonna manifest. So if I think about it as a parent being anxious, uh, while it may not manifest in the same behaviors for the children, the children are extremely sensitive to anxiety and they will pick up on it and they will man it will manifest for them in different ways whether they're more sensitive to specific moments or specific things or they're crying or people respond and so moral of the story is i i think it's interesting to think about anxiety as a function of groups not individuals and while i am not an expert on this i wonder what that's like for you all to hear and I'd love to hear your response. What's it, what's it like to hear something along those lines? Because I would really love to, to hear your response. The cool thing, though, is when we, we'll get to calm in a second, but like calm is also contagious. Calm is also a function of groups, right? It, it really uh, helps other people when one person is calm. It spreads. Um, it has ripple effects, just like anxiety does. And, and there's, a, there's a quote that I think is really helpful, uh, which is, like, we are responsible for the energy that we bring into a room. And what that translates to me as, like, I can bring calm and spread calm, or I can bring anxiety and spread anxiety. And, and my goal is I want to be calm. That's what I want. And so how do I begin practicing that, right? And, you know, it really makes me think of Korra in the spirit world. Like, Korra manifests as this young young girl in the spirit world, and Iroh is with her, and he kind of explains that the spirit world reacts to her. And, and I think, in a way, our real world react <laughs> that way, just not quite as visibly as the spirit world does like everybody gets gets dark and they start to transform into dark spirits in the spirit world but for for us i think about that metaphorically where in the real world so to speak people start to transform and they kind of get a little darker and i i just wanted to kind of lift that up and that's again that's from book two i think uh episode 10 of the legend of Korra. And so with anxiety, we've kind of talked about, I think we've definitely mentioned it on the podcast before, but there's there are two typical patterned ways of responding to anxiety, right? One of which I definitely identify with. And so there are over-functioners and under-functioners. And so just in case you're listening, this is probably not a great time. If listening with other people, it's probably not a great time to like elbow the person you're with if you recognize this as one, as one of your friends or family, um, just because I think that that can, that can lead to some troubling conversations. But 
I wonder what it would be like for you to have that conversation later and say, hey, where do you think you are? Versus like, this is totally John. Um, you know, I just wonder. And so two basic things, over-functioning and under-functioning. Over-functioners, uh, typically when they uh, find themselves in an anxiety-inducing situation, they typically will become controlling they claim to know what's best for others. They begin micromanaging. They get into others' stuff, but they aren't able to get into their own. And I think overfunctioning. When I think of overfunctioning, I think of Avatar. I think about Katara. I think that when people describe, and we did an episode earlier on this, but when people describe Katara as quote mothering the group. I wonder if this is a manifestation of of overfunctioning, where she is doing her best to respond to anxiety, and this is the tool that she has in her toolbox. And it's it's not a reflection of you know I don't really love the the idea of mothering, and the reason is it's a very gendered comment because we don't like say fathering, right? Uh, that's that doesn't carry the same weight or the same connotation, and so I, I I hesitate to say that, but I say it because connotatively the the fan base will understand when I say that, and I would I wonder what it would be like if we shifted that language to think about her as over functioning rather than um, you know functioning how she would hope to function in that in that space right uh, without anxiety. And so I also think of Mako, right, who is always seeming like trying to manage Korra, trying to manage Bolin. He's like, but we got to do this. And I I think that speaks to a lot of why he goes into police work. And speaking of police, I think that Lin is a classic over-functioner. There's this moment where (laughs) we talked about last episode where she's just trying to work so hard and she just can't let go. And Ai Wei comes in and is like, you know, Lin, you can chill, right? (laughs) And finally she does and so i think that's another form of overfunctioning, right on the other side under functioning uh components of this are people are theoretically less competent uh the more anxious the system so competence decreases with anxiety in when you're an underfunctioner. and so these are the people who don't necessarily show up on time they don't get stuff done when you ask them to you can't really count on them they're often the subject of the line like what's wrong with this person and i think that's that's uh often the the way we can describe under functioning and you know the person i think of with this is young su yin right the reason lin and su yin get into a fight early on that's the reason they have scar like she has a scar on her face is because Su Yin is acting out. She's doing her thing. She's like not functioning the way that she's supposed to respond when there when there's anxiety. When you know, Toph is being a parent that is hard to work with and engage with. And I think that it's interesting to put it in perspective with birth order, right? Because this this kind of overfunctioning underfunctioning is often correlated with birth order. Usually, overfunctioners are firstborn. Um, or, on the other side, firstborn women. Um, and, 
you know, it, when you're the firstborn, you know, and you have younger siblings, often you'll hear something along the lines of like, make sure you close that drawer or your siblings will die. And <laughs> what that does is it just, it creates a pretty profound sense of importance, right? <laughs> like, uh, I believe that I have control over, you know, whether my siblings are successful in life or whether they even sur- survive to put a um, hyperbolic um phrase to it but on the other hand if you're an underfunctioner and you're the second sibling oftentimes you're like you hear don't worry about it your sister will get it or don't worry about it your sibling will get it and i think about that in terms of suyin and in lin right i i think that that's classic birth order portrayed there where what we see is an overfunctioner or underfunctioner um and the way they grow up is clearly different i think that suyin becomes very secure in her um with wisdom and she acquires age and I think that people evolve and we don't always have to be over and under functioners. I just think that we do have a patterned way of responding to anxiety and I think it's helpful for us to know what our pattern is and we also need people who are in our corner that can call us out when we go into these patterns. We need people that we trust, that we love, that we care about, that when they tell us that we're over or under functioning, we can be like, oh, oh no, okay, I, I can do this. And we can change and we can um, be held accountable, right? In a loving way. All right, so we've talked about anxiety. We've talked about like, these are the, this is the thing that gets in the way. This is like the main barrier because we want to get rid of, like we, we, there's no way we we're gonna ever get rid of anxiety Right? That's not what this does. But what this does is it lets us let go of anxiety as a lifestyle. Right? That's Notice it's not let go of anxiety, period. <laughs> right? We have to let go of anxiety as a lifestyle. And so theoretically cultivating calm and stillness will do that. So we have to first understand, like, what is calm? What is Brene Brown calling calm? Right? And she defines it as calm is creating perspective, and mindfulness while engaging emotional reactivity. So these are the people who can bring perspective to complicated situations. They they feel their feelings, but they're not reacting to the heightened emotions of, of fear and and shame and anger, right? They're they're waiting until they have more information. So it turns out that that calm people have two things that they do that we can begin practicing right now. The first is breathing people. Breathing. Calm people breathe. And when I say breathe, I mean like they are they breathe more than we do. The people, the non-calm people. <laughs> right? Uh, and they're very comfortable with silence. So that's the, I'm I'm kind of lumping that in with one. They're able to breathe, and they're comfortable in silence. And so when someone comes up to them with this anxiety-inducing prompt, like, did you know that they're laying off an entire department tomorrow? A calm person will take a moment and breathe. Already, I can imagine how uncomfortable it is to sit in that silence sometimes, right? I, we want to fill it. It's our tendency often to, to fill that silence. And so 
the first thing that calm people do is that they breathe and then they sit in the silence for a little bit. They take it in. They don't jump straight to the conclusion. They uh, theorize about like what are the, the possibilities here. And the, so what they do, that leads to their second practice for calm people, which is responding with questions to anxiety-provoking situations. And so instead of, you know, oh, they're laying off an entire department, like, oh my God. And instead of just responding and saying, oh no, what are we going to do? They respond with, okay, where did you hear that? And they try to learn more information. Where did you learn that? Who said that? When? Uh, like, and they, they're fact-finding. And they're doing it in a way that's not like, okay, tell me this, tell me this, tell me this. But it's it's mixture mixed with this idea of calm and stillness, right? Calm, silence, comfortable with silence, and then questions. And making sure that you're seeking the most generous story with the information. And often... I think that this is important, right? Like that, those questions, even when you think you have all the information, I think the, the question is, do we have enough information to make a decision or form a response? And then when you do have enough information, asking the question, do I have enough information to freak out? And then... Will freaking out help? Will freaking out help? Right? And the answer is, like, I have yet to come into contact with an answer in, in which it is, yes, it's helpful to freak out. Um, I, I would love to hear an example, right? And, you know, I really think of early on, Zuko early on in the show, when every time he hears that the Avatar's over here, it's just instant response. We have to go! And... There's just no space for calm and stillness or pondering or contemplation, right? It is immediate response versus Iroh, who is constantly trying to get Zuko to slow down, who is thoughtful and contemplative and is like, hey, have some tea. Let's talk about it, right? I think that that is a good kind of comparison for me to kind of frame calm and stillness uh, as opposed to this anxiety and like, this need to go, 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 right? And so that's something that's helpful for me. So we have these two practices, right? Calm people breathe and they're comfortable with silence. And then they respond to anxiety-provoking situations with questions, right? And, and I think I want to offer you uh, this breathing practice that I think is, is helpful. Um, when we are feeling anxious... Uh, one could practice what is called mindful breathing or tactical breathing, or there's a lot of names for it, counting breathing, where square breathing, there's a, there's a lot of names. Anyway, multi- moral of the story is um, we're going to count to four multiple times. And what you do is you inhale for four counts. One, two, three, four. Hold for four counts. Two, three, four. Exhale for four counts, two, three, four, and hold for four counts, two, three, four. 
and then repeating that process. That is a interest. There's an interesting story that Brene tells on uh, I think the power of vulnerability, which is one of her audio um, versions um, of a class she taught a while back on the gifts of imperfection, and she was talking about how mindful breathing. She was like, I, I don't know how I feel about mindful breathing. And she learned about it, and she was like, "We'll tell like we talked to a bunch of yoga instructors, and it's like mindful breathing." And so it's you know, you breathe in for four, hold for four, exhale for four, hold for four. And then she went over to uh, the military base and found out that they practiced breathing too. And she was like, "Well, tell me about that." And she's yes, ma'am. We call this tactical breathing. And she's like, "Ooh, I like the sound of that. What is it?" And it turns out it's. Well, you inhale for four, hold for four, exhale for four, <laughs> and and you know, despite the name, right? It's it's the same, and I, I think that breathing is really important, right? Um, as fire bending comes from the breath, right? We can't bend unless we're able to really take our breathing into account. So I think that's worth noting. So calm people breathe, and then they ask questions, and and I, I think they also. Uh, I'm curious about what it would look like for you all to practice this. So practicing non-reactive responses to emotions that have historically affected your reactions. So if you know you have, um, if you're going to talk to a person in your life that is very um, prone to strong reaction, then and you know what that might be like, if you know that this person gets angry often, for instance, you might rehearse and say okay they're gonna yell this what do i say right and having something that you can say that's in your tool belt without having to react right being proactive about your reaction that is so that you can be non-reactive that's somewhat awkward to say but you want to be proactive (laughs) about the responses that you can utilize that are in your tool belt so that you're not reacting in a way that's outside of your values right So practice how you'll respond to these people before engaging, right? And there are lots of ways you could say, I'm someone asks you and says, hey, will you do this? I don't know what we're going to do if you don't. You're like, I'm not sure. I need more time to think on this one. Like, like go back to your tool belt and have these these non-reactive responses to pull out and whatever that is for you. So that's calm. We have a couple things on calm. And then the other side of that is stillness, right? And stillness is defined by Brene from meditation to prayer to regular periods of quiet reflection and alone time. And uh, her actual definition is, it is not about focusing on nothingness. It's about creating a clearing. It's opening up an emotionally clutter-free space, allowing ourselves to feel and think and dream and question. And of course, I naturally thought of Guru Patik when Aang was learning to clear his chakras, right? It's Aang's going through the process for that was about creating and clearing the pools of water. It's about opening up an emotionally clutter-free space. And I, I think that cultivating calm and stillness will help us inevitably clear our chakras if that's something that we, um, if the, we can, if we believe in, if we can feel ourselves leaning into that as a possibility. And with all of this in mind, you notice that Aang meditates a lot in that episode, right? There's a lot of stillness 
There's a lot of contemplation. There's a lot of inner inner thought, right? And, you know, I think of Aang meditating all the time, uh, Korra meditating to try and get in touch with her past selves. Air nomads in general are often meditating. I think that um, we see Janora use that quite frequently. And I, I think that giving ourselves space to just sit in that calm and stillness is really important, right? That being said, <laughs> just thinking about meditating makes some of us anxious, right? Sometimes I feel like for those of us that are not like uh, willing to lean into that kind of a culture, sometimes we feel like we're a, we're posing, right? Or this doesn't feel like an authentic exercise, right? Spending the whole time that we try to meditate thinking like, how do I stop thinking? And, you know, stillness can be anxiety provoking. So again, it's somewhat counterintuitive. But again, I think that what that does is in order to, to get to this stillness, we have to address the clutter that is there, right? We have to be willing to engage the things that are underneath why we don't want to do it, right? And again, we have to let go of our assumptions of what I think still is supposed to look like so that we can find how to do it for us without worrying about all of those things. But that being said, like this barrier of fear, right? This next barrier to stillness of fear is really something that we need to grapple with, right? Because if we stop long enough to feel the feelings, the truth of our lives is going to catch up and all the stuff that we've been repressing is going to bubble to the surface. And we convince ourselves that if we stay busy enough and keep moving, reality won't be able to keep up. The irony is that the thing that is wearing us down is trying to stay in front of the feeling worn down, right? It's a self-perpetuating problem. And so I, I think, you know, thinking about that makes me think of another barrier, which is, you know, how we're raised to think about these practices, right? If you think about the parents and teachers in our lives, I bet you can think of one or two who you can recall screaming, uh, them screaming at us saying like, calm down and sit still rather than actually modeling the behaviors they wanted us to exhibit. And we, we have to practice what we preach, if we will, if, if I say so myself. Uh, I must not be a hypocrite, right? I must practice what I'm professing. I must practice the values that I'm professing. And when we don't see that, when we see like people yelling, calm down, it's, it's, it's so, is that what calm looks like? And so that's what it turns into. And it makes it so that calm gives way to anxiety. And it makes it so that stillness gives way to feeling jumpy, right? There's a moment in uh, The Promise where, you know, things are going wrong. And Sokka is trying to address a whole crowd. And he's like, listen, everybody calm down. And naturally they don't listen. And so Toph earthbends herself onto this platform and then doubles down and yells again and says, when my friend tells you to calm down, you calm down. <laughs> and I just find it really fascinating, right? That like there are so many examples of people that we love and care about who have been raised on tools that are unhelpful. And I think this is an example of that where 
yelling calm down never works. <laughs> and so I just want to lift that up as something to, to consider. Like, I think we have to, to model the behavior we wish to see in the world, right? If we take on uh, the Gandhi quote, be the change you wish to see in the world, right? Um, but I, I just wanted to lift that up as a, another barrier, right? So we have this fear, we have the way we've been raised to think about calm and stillness. And I, I think for me, the way that I need to practice this is to lean more into Iroh and his example, right? Because I, I think that when we give ourselves time to, oh, to lean into the moment of ritual, of preparing tea and heating the hot water and letting it steep, taking a moment to, to prepare your cup, however you like to drink it, taking a moment to enjoy and revel in the taste. That is a practice of calm and stillness. And I think that, that Iroh has kind of blessed us with this opportunity of an example, right? To take, take his example as a, as a way to emulate that. And so I'm curious for you all, what other moments of calm and stillness you may have noticed in this series, whether it be The Legend of Korra, whether it be Atla, whether it be any of the comics or the novels, like what are moments of calm? What are moments of stillness? And please share it with us. We'd love to hear from you. Bending, not breaking, uh, BNB underscore pod on all the things. Um, we'd love to hear about that. I think that'd be really helpful. So this has been a lot. I feel like I've been you know, rambling. Some of it may or may not have been helpful, but I, I'm interested in learning more about this and I can't wait to tap into it with you all. So hopefully uh, you help me uh, do this as well and we can hold each other uh, up to it. So I hope you've enjoyed this so far. We're going to take a short uh, musical interlude and come on right back into your ears with our dig moments. diving into DIG, which is, again, these are the uh, the things that we want to work on, right? It's uh, digging into the content in a way that helps us continue to live it and not just, you know, talk about it and actually implement it. So D stands for we're going to get deliberate. And what we want to do in terms of cultivating calm and stillness and letting go of anxiety as a lifestyle is I want to pose a question for you all. And I'm, I'm, I'm lifting this up from the book, but what would it be like to, to think about the uppers and downers we are engaging with? Uh, for instance, are we drinking caffeine every day to stay awake? 
Uh, and then on the same side, are we also taking downers to help us sleep at night, right? How, and and if so, how can we increase our calm and stillness and potentially allow that to begin to replace our need to uh, rely on these uppers and these downers, right? What would it be like to be less busy and have this less less need to be busy so that we can incorporate calm and stillness into our day. I'm just curious what that would be like uh, for us, and that's something that I've been kind of deliberating, and I'd love to hear how you are deliberating on this, and also how you're going to be deliberate about cultivating calm and stillness and letting go of anxiety at a lifestyle. What are you doing? Feel free to let us know. You can send a voicemail to thearchivee at gmail.com anytime you like. So that's D. Uh, I is getting inspired. As you all will know, if you have been listening to the podcast for any length of time, you'll know that I really like to read, especially books like this one. And I get inspired by books. And, you know, Brene recommends one, especially on this topic, uh, called The Dance of Connection by Harriet Lerner. And Harriet Lerner is a wonderful author who has written several books that I have really enjoyed. And this one is one of those. It's a really lovely read that breaks down those patterned ways that we have in managing anxiety. She dives into over-functioning, under-functioning, uh, dives into a lot of other things as well. And I think that it's a really tasty book um, in terms of what it has to offer. And so uh, I, I wonder uh, if if not learning like me, then what is what is the way that you like to get inspired? What will help you feel inspired to lean into calm and stillness, right? Uh, how will you um, get yourself going, so to speak? Finally, G, get going, right? Uh, <laughs> and we are going to get going. And this one is the, the call it is how do we experiment with different forms of stillness, different forms of calm for us, right? It might mean experimenting with an app that helps you meditate. It might mean trying something new and going on a walk without headphones. It might mean all kinds of things. Like what, what is, what is like, despite the literal meaning of stillness, right? Like I, I think I just said walking, right? I, I, I'm really calm and mindful and I, I feel like I'm cultivating the spirit of stillness when I walk, even though I'm not literally still. And I'm curious what that is for you, because it could be so many things. What is it for you? How can you experiment to find something that helps you be calm? How can you experiment with something new that is going to help you lean into stillness just a little bit more than you were before? Okie dokie. Uh, this has been an episode of Bending Not Breaking, and I'm really thankful for you all. I'm especially thankful for our patrons. I'm I'm thankful for uh, one of our patrons who had the um, generosity to support us at our highest tier and take advantage of our uh, one-on-one conversations around the gifts of imperfection. And I'm thankful for everybody who is giving us an opportunity to to share this work and to do this work. And to, um, I, I think that it's inspiring for me to continue to make this a priority in my life. And so thank you all for engaging and being present, and I'm really appreciative. So 
Again, this has been Bending and Not Breaking. We are incredibly thankful for Noah Blanchard, Alex Mayfield, Max Gongaware. We're thankful for all of our listeners, all of our patrons, and so much gratitude. So until next time, be well and do good.